Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a subject that we will never fully comprehend. And it's by far uh, the most amazing miracle in, in the Bible. Uh, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege we have of being able to gather together this morning, Lord, to worship you. And Lord, as we now come to the preaching of your word, I pray that uh, you would just give me clarity and uh, the way to speak it, and Lord, that your spirit would move in a mighty way and open up the hearts and minds of each of us, Lord, that we would receive today what you would have us to, as we do look at... Uh, this greatest of all miracles. And um, Lord, we thank you again for the gift of your son, Jesus, and for all that you have provided for us through him, uh, our salvation. And it's in his name I pray, amen. Uh, and like I said, this morning we're going to look at the, the greatest of all miracles. And matter of fact, all of history uh, points uh, to this event, and of course the event I'm talking about is the incarnation of Christ. Everything in history prior to, you know, pointed toward this event, and everything after has pointed back toward uh, that event. And even our calendar shows that the birth of Christ is recognized as the most important event that's ever taken place. And what is the incarnation? Well, the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, deity, taking on himself a human nature. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. The same truth is in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the Spirit. Again, Christ, second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God coming to earth, taking on himself a human nature. And uh, when we think about it, the doctrine of the incarnation, you know, and this, again, the son coming who had never had a beginning, who from an eternity past had existed with the Father and the Spirit, who created in the, the heavens and the earth in a moment of time uh, he humbles himself, willingly leaving his heavenly glory to come into the world. And Christ took upon himself a human nature. He was born as a baby. He grew and lived his life here on this earth for you know, 33 years. And then it says he appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in Galatians 4.4 talks about when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And when the fullness of time had come, you know, what that entails there is that the plan of redemption and the incarnation 
It didn't start when Gabriel appeared to Mary and said that she would be the mother of the Son of the Most High. It didn't start even when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God told the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. But it was before man was ever created. The plan of redemption and the incarnation was in the mind of God. The plan of redemption and incarnation has existed before even the foundation of the world when the eternal counsel of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit you know, divided up the work of redemption with the Father being the originator. He designed the plan for redemption that He would send His Son into the world, the incarnation. The Son was the executor. You know, he would willingly obey the Father and accomplish what He was set out to do, our redemption. And then the Holy Spirit would be the one to apply what Christ accomplished when He came, our redemption to us. And so the incarnation, again, is that time in history when God the Father sent His Son into the world and the Son would take upon Himself a human nature. Jesus was the God-man. Truly and fully God, but also truly and fully man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And that is a great mystery that we will never fully comprehend this side of heaven. Jesus as the God-man is the one person with two natures, deity and human. Jesus did not, as some false teachers would claim, uh, become two persons, one deity and one human. Nor did he just take on the appearance of human nature, as sometimes an, an angel did, or even uh, Christ in the Old Testament when he appeared in human uh, form. But uh, no, it was he who from eternity past had a divine nature. He took on, in addition to, um, a complete human nature. He took on body, soul, and spirit. Hebrews 2.14 says, He himself likewise also partook of the same. When it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also you know, took on flesh and blood. Even from our shorter confession of faith here at Grace Covenant, we hold and say, We believe that Jesus Christ represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. We believe that in the incarnation, God becoming man, Christ surrendered only the prerogatives of deity, but nothing of the divine essence, either in degree or kind. So in his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily gave up some of his privilege and status that was his as God. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so what did Jesus empty himself of at his incarnation? There are some who believe that Jesus emptied himself or gave up, laid aside, uh, some of his divine attributes, such as his omniscience or his omnipotence or omnipresence while he was on earth. Uh, but he held on to others, such as holiness and grace. They view it as a, a voluntary uh, self-limitation, uh, which Jesus carried out to fulfill the work of redemption. But that uh, is known as the kenotic or the kenosis theory, and that view has got to be rejected. Um, because notice in Philippians 2, it doesn't say that Jesus gave up or laid aside any of his divine attributes. It says, though he was in the form of God, his preexistent state, that he emptied or he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, what he did, he emptied himself of his glory. It was set aside that he had enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past and he voluntarily gave up the privileges and the glory that belonged to him. It says, you know, he made himself of no reputation. He was willing to be despised and rejected, and even to, be, to the point of being crucified on the cross. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had given up the glory. He had given up his status and privilege that he had had in heaven to come to earth. And now he's asking the Father here in his high priestly prayer to give him back the glory when he returns to heaven. And in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 8 and 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so the kenosis theory it must also be rejected because God is immutable. And if Jesus, you know, being the eternal Son of God, gave up any of his attributes, then we can no longer affirm that Jesus was God while he was here on earth. And so the kenosis theory ultimately denies the full deity of Christ uh, by, making him so, uh, by making him something less than fully God. And so therefore we reject it. And at the transfiguration, you know, Jesus', Jesus his deity was revealed. Um, the veil of his humanity, it was pulled back as Peter, James, and John were allowed to see uh, the expression of Jesus' divine essence. In Matthew 17, 2, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And so, again, Jesus coming, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he made himself of no reputation by taking on human nature. And he didn't humble himself by giving up, again, his divine attributes but by adding to himself true humanity. And again, if he did give up any of his divine attributes, then that would say that he ceased to be God, and we reject that. And some of the ways, uh, you know, that Jesus uh, 
humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. Just think immediately uh, of his birth. Uh, what humble circumstances uh, of his birth when there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, Mary gave birth to Christ and it says she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Uh, the eternal Son of God coming and then being born into that kind of environment. And then in Hebrews 2.17 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he was made like you know, us in every respect. And then also he humbled himself and says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Christ gave up the glory that he had had from eternity past. And he left heaven where, you know, the angels worshipped him. And he came to earth to be mocked and ridiculed and despised and to be rejected. And of course, the greatest demonstration of all is his humiliation is when he went to the cross uh, for you and I. And John MacArthur on this, he said, Though equal with God, the Son of God submitted voluntarily to humanity and death as one who fully possessed the sovereign, free, holy, and loving will to be limited by His choice to obey the Father for the purpose of the program of redemption and the glory of the Godhead. And I want us to look this morning, you know, at Christ, you know, fully God and fully human. And first, I want to look at Jesus' deity. And uh, we know from Scripture that Jesus was the exact representation of God. It says in Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn by all creation. And then in verse 19, it says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 6, it talks about how in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We see in Christ is the image of God. And then there in verse 6, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Jesus said in John 12, 45, and whoever sees me, sees who? Sees him who sent me, sees the Father. And when Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so we see, again, Jesus being the exact representation of God. And he exhibited uh, and exercised all the divine characteristics and attributes of God. I just want to look at a few of those. Um, his eternality. In Colossians 1.17, it 
It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so, you know, Christ claiming that I've always been. And so we see his eternality. And then uh, also his immutability, uh, another one of his divine attributes. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a divine attribute. And then speaking of Christ in Hebrews 1, verse 10 through 12, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And so we see his eternality, his immutability, and then his omnipotence. In Hebrews 1.3, we just read it. It says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then that after making purification for sins, that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, it says, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God in our salvation. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, one more. He says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, again, just the omnipotence of Christ. And he claimed uh, to have equal omnipotence with the Father. In John 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep will hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what Jesus is saying, no one can snatch them, one of my sheep, out of my hand, but also no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if no one is claiming being equal with God the Father there, they are one. And then in his omniscience, another of his divine attributes, uh, we see this in John 1, verse 47 and 49, when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, I saw you. And Nathanael, he answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. When Nathaniel realized Jesus knew that about him before even hand. Christ was showing his omnipotence, and he acknowledged that he was the Son of God. And then it says, after seeing some of the signs, and there were many that were believing in his name, uh, there were large crowds following Christ. He says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. And so, again, his omniscience. And then one more in John 6, 64. He says, But there are some of you who do not believe, 
where Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was uh, that would betray him. And again, just a display of his omniscience. And then his uh, omnipresence, uh, another divine attribute, Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of age. And then uh, we see his holiness, his righteousness. Um, in John 6, 69, it says, you are the Holy One of God. And even the demons uh, attested to Jesus' holiness. Uh, in Luke 4, 34, it says, what have we you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so even the demons acknowledged that Jesus was holy and righteous. And then Stephen, in his uh, speech in Acts 7.52, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And so, again, just Christ's holiness and his righteousness. And then his sovereignty in Ephesians 1. It says that God has raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And so we see his sovereignty. And then also in 1 Peter 3, 22, he says, Christ, where is he seated? He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then he also displays his deity and that he could forgive sins. Uh, in Mark 2, uh, verses 5 through 7, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man's, man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, you know, they were right. Only God can forgive sins. But they were wrong because Jesus was not blaspheming because he's God. And why, you know, was Jesus' deity necessary? And I took this from Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology. And there, he listed three reasons. And the first was that only an infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. And then the second reason is that salvation is from the Lord. Uh, no human being or other creature could, could save man. All of man, we, we have sinned in Adam. And so Salvation had to be from the Lord. And then thirdly, he says, only someone who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man, both to bring us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us. And um, 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us this. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And that man is Christ Jesus. And so if Jesus was not fully God, 
we would have no salvation. And ultimately, there's no Christianity. And so that's taking a look at why Christ had to be divine. But also, he had to be fully human. And I want us to look at Jesus' humanity because, again, 100% God, 100% man. And the scriptures, you know, they declare this repeatedly that Jesus was truly and fully human. And uh, he took on a complete human nature, as I mentioned earlier, body, soul, and spirit. And he took on his human nature from his mother Mary. Uh, he received his human nature from her. And that's the first uh, point I want to make is uh, we see in his humanity that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived of the, it says he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In Luke 1, uh, verse 27, it says, To a virgin. Uh, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And there in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then over in Matthew, uh, we see uh, again uh, the birth of Christ. His announcement, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And when the angel appeared to, to Joseph, and to reassure him, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so what the virgin birth teaches us is that the birth of Christ was totally the work of God. Man had no part in it. He had no earthly father. And after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... You know, again, God promised that their the offspring, the seed of the woman, would ultimately destroy uh, the serpent. And Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, he said, As the Lord's divine nature had no mother, so his human nature had no father. It was entirely the work of God. He took on him human nature from Mary, but it was done through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. And then how did all this happen? You know, we, we don't know. It's a mystery. But it was done by the Holy Spirit, and it was done in a way that the human nature Jesus took on was sinless. The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And so let me say again, you know, a new person did not come into being. Jesus existed from eternity past, and he was now taking on a complete, sinless human nature. And so the first evidence is that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The second evidence of his humanity are in his names that we see from Scripture. At uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. 
So we see, you know, he was a man, a man attested by God. And uh, read this one earlier in 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So again, we're seeing the humanness of Christ. And Jesus referred to himself throughout the New Testament as the Son of Man many times. And just three examples uh, there. You know, he said to the scribe who came to him that, that said, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So again, Christ claiming to be the Son of Man. And then when he was accused of blasphemy for telling the paralytic that you know, his sins were forgiven, he said to the scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And then just one more where he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, when he told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so in his names we see uh, his humanness. And then uh, thirdly, he had a typical human body. Uh, John 4.9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she recognized him, you know, as a Jew. And then even after his resurrection, he said to the disciples, uh, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And uh, they gave him a piece of fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So, again, we see that, you know, it has a typical human body. And then that body, fourthly, it was subject to growth and development. In Luke 2.40, it says, And the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom. And in verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. And so Jesus, after being born, he, he learned how to walk and talk. Uh, to eat and read and write, just like other children uh, would have done. And Hebrews uh, 5, 8, and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all those that would obey. But um, again, we're seeing his humanness here, his human nature. And then the fifth evidence of his humanity is that he was did restrict himself to certain limitations in his knowledge. Uh, we see that in Mark eleven thirteen, it says, "In seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see uh, if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So he went to see if it was bearing figs or not." Um, and then another one we saw is that. In Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, talking about uh, his second coming. And then uh, another evidence of his humanity is the physical limitations that he uh, went, we see. Uh, the first, that he would become weary. Um, it says, when he met the woman of Samaria at the well, you know, we're told that he was weary, and it says, uh, 
He was wearied from his journey, and he was sitting beside the well. Uh, we know that he became tired and exhausted, that you know, he fell asleep on a boat in the, in the middle of the sea during the storm. And then um, he also, he was thirsty, uh, you know, and when he was on the cross, it says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Uh, we know, too, that he went through, you know, physical pain uh, as he was beaten and as he hung on the cross. And then, of course, the supreme uh, thing in his humanity was his death on the cross. And then also, in his humanity, uh, Christ, we see his emotions that he displayed. He wept at the death of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him back from the, uh, the dead. It says he lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And um, so we see, you know, how he desired and loved, you know, their repentance and wanted to gather them to him. And then even before his crucifixion, uh, he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. And that being in agony, it says he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And so Christ, you know, he had uh, emotions. And then... It, uh, he was also, as it says, was tempted like we are. Uh, in Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he tempted Jesus with the lust of the flesh to turn the stones into bread. He was tempted with the lust of the eyes uh, to put God to the test, to throw yourself down from the temple and he'll bear you up. Uh, the angels will protect you. And then he was tempted with the pride of life. Uh, that he would be given all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down to Satan. And, of course, we know that Jesus uh, did not succumb. He uh, used Scripture to uh, combat Satan there. And also, in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that raises a, a question, you know, well, could Jesus have sin? And the answer is, you know, he, he could not ha have sin. The Bible, you know, clearly affirms Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. And the temptations were real. But it also says, you know, God cannot be tempted, James 1, 3. And the Bible doesn't tell us how these two natures united in one person, Christ, face temptation. But we do know that since Jesus was fully God and he could not have sinned, it's the impeccability of, of Christ. And then if he, because if he could have, then he would have ceased to have been God. And then also he couldn't have sinned because God had decreed the plan of redemption even before the foundation of the world. And um, Jesus, you know, if he couldn't sin because if he had sinned, the plan of redemption uh, would have failed. And that's an impossibility when God has decreed it. 
Because Job 42.2, God says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, and then Isaiah, Isaiah 14.24 says, As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And in Isaiah 46.9 and 10, it says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times and yet and not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so there is no way that Christ could have sinned because again the plan of redemption would have uh, failed. And that's an impossibility. And that's really where the difference if we see between the first Adam and the second Adam, uh, Christ, is that Adam was made perfect. He was put into a perfect environment, and we, he didn't, you know, we, he had not sinned. And we could say that it was possible for him not to sin, but we can't say that it was impossible for him not to sin because we know that he did, even though he had been placed in that perfect environment with only one command. But then for Jesus, it was not only possible for him not to sin, but it was also impossible for him to sin because he was fully God. He was the God-man. And then just another evidence of his humanity is uh, he, he prayed. Uh, he was constantly in prayer. Uh, we saw that in the, when he was in the wilderness being tempted. Also, it's, it's in Luke 5, 15, when there were, a lot of times he would... Um, be around the crowds and he would go away by himself it says great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray and you can just imagine the, the crowds and uh, coming around Jesus and how you know again in his humanness uh, how weary and tired he would be but yet he would go and pray uh, to the Father and in uh, Luke 6 12 and 13, it talks about how he prayed all night before calling uh, his disciples together. And it says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And another time we see praying is, of course, before he goes to the cross, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him and uh, to Gethsemane. And then just another passage where we see the humanity of Christ is it says in Matthew 13, verse 53, picking up there, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so Jesus was so human that as the folks around him saw him grow up, they, you know, 
failed to recognize, you know, his deity, even though he was performing all the miracles and signs. And John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers uh, believed in him. And so that's how human, you know, uh, Christ was. And again, from Wayne Gratham's uh, systematic theology thing that I pulled here, why was Christ's uh, humanity necessary? And the first reason was for representative obedience. Uh, Jesus is our representative. And he obeyed for us God's law where Adam failed and disobeyed God's law. As we see in Romans 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made, made righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. His righteousness is what is credited to our accounts. And then the second reason uh, His humanity was necessary is that to be the substitute sacrifice. He had to be a man in order to take our place and pay uh, the debt we owed. In Hebrews 2, verse 16, it says, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus satisfied God's justice You know, when he went to the cross. He bore the wrath that we deserve. And in lieu of God's wrath, you and I, get to receive God's mercy and His love. And then the third reason that His humanity was necessary was to be the one mediator between God and man, to represent us uh, to God. And then also His humanity was necessary was to fulfill God's purpose for man to rule over creation. You know, God had put man on the earth to subdue and rule over it to be his representatives. Uh, but man, when sinned in the garden, they forfeit, he forfeited that right to rule and to reign. And uh, Jesus had to be a man to fulfill uh, God's original purpose there. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 20, 21, he says, that Christ, you know, when he was raised from the dead, he's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named. And God has put all things under his feet and given him his head over all things. And there's even more good news in that. Not only is Christ ruling and reigning today, is that one day you and I, will rule and reign with him. And, um, you know, to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 21, it says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, 
we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so one day, not only is Christ ruling and reigning, but we will be a part of that. And then also Christ had in his humanity to be our example and to be a pattern for us in life. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And um, we know Jesus, after washing the disciples' feet, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. And for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. You know, Jesus, when we think about eternal Son of God, setting aside his glory to come to the earth and then you know, he's going to give his life, but to wash the disciples' feet, how humbling is that, you know, and is an example for you and I that um, we sh should serve one another, not looking out for our own personal interest, but the interest of others. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And that's the goal for every one of us as believers, is to be molded and shaped into the image of Christ, that we would follow his example. And then another reason, and we've mentioned this one earlier, is that he, in his, coming in his humanity, is to sympathize is our great high priest. You know, by taking upon himself humanity, Jesus has personally experienced the temptations and trials that you and I face in this life. And as a result, it says he is able to sympathize, you know, more fully with us as we go through our experiences. Hebrews 2.18, For he, because he himself has suffer, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And there are many, just in this local body here, they're going through some very difficult trials and suffering. But we can know that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with you and will never leave or forsake you. He will strengthen and comfort you and to see you through. And um, that is Jesus, you know, in his humanity. He, he knows those things that we are going through. And so it comes to that question again, ultimately. Why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, take on humanity? Why did he endure the ridicule, the persecution, and die on the cross? And that was ultimately to redeem a people for himself. It was the only way that any of us could be saved. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from Christ. 
We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Every one of us were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And again, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not one of us was righteous. None of us were seeking after God. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we all deserve the wages uh, of our sin, which, of course, being death. Every one of us deserved to spend an eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. An eternal torment, being separated from God. And our best works are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. And we think about it. You know, when Satan and the angels fail, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. There were no second chances. But that's the good news at Christmas, is that God has sent His Son into the world to redeem a people for Himself, to display His love, His mercy, and His grace. Jesus came that He might bear the wrath of God that we deserve. And he paid the penalty for our sins of all of those who would believe upon Him. And not only that, as we mentioned earlier, His righteousness is credited to our account. You know, it's not our righteousness that we stand before God. It's His. There is nothing you can do to become any more righteous before God as what you are right now. Yes, we are going to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling, but it is not our righteousness that we stand before God. It's already been accomplished in Christ. It is in His righteousness that you and I stand. And also, there is nothing more that we can ever do to cause God to love us any more than what He does now. He's already demonstrated His love toward us in sending Christ to bear our sin. And um, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Hebrews 2.3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? And um, if there is anyone here this morning that might be listening to the service by live stream that has never repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, I would call on you to do so today. As the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then for all of us who do know Christ as our Lord and Savior, may we praise Him for what He has done on our behalf for the great things He has done for us, that we who were once enemies are now His children. We're sons and daughters. We've been adopted into God's family. We're joint heirs with Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to rule and reign one day with Him. And He has given us His Holy Spirit as a seal of our redemption. Let's pray. Lord, um, 